Sanatananan has invited me to share some Dhamma reflection on the occasion of his uh, birthday. Lan, we call in Thailand, coming together to practice. In the, we call Pati Pati Puja, an offering of practice. It's, uh, when Lord Buddha talked about ways that uh, we could honor him after he entered Mahaparinibbana, as well as visiting holy sites, uh, chanting, offering flowers, fragrances, etc. He said the highest offering, the best offering, is the offering of practice. So we come on the occasion of our teacher's birthdays and we make some efforts at training our minds. And I'm happy to contribute, offer some encouragement if I can. What I thought I might talk about today is some of the Anusati meditations, the other meditations that the Lord Buddha recommended for people that use the thinking mind, the, ref the reflective capacity that we have. Because many modern people do have a lot of thinking when they come to sit. And we have breath meditation as our primary practice. And the Krubhajans are often talking about gamatana, the mindfulness of the body parts, investigation of the body parts as elements. And uh, these practices that lead to deep insights that weaken and uproot the root defilements. But oftentimes, when we come to sit, if we've had a busy day, or if practice has slipped somewhat, the idea of diving straight into these gamatanas to try to uproot the defilements seems like uh, a few steps down the, the track. We have to work with the, the mind as it presents itself. And so one of the things that we can do with restless energy or a compulsive thinking mind is to choose a reflective subject and then try to keep the thoughts within the parameters of that theme. So there are in the chanting every day, we have Buddha Nusati, Dhamma Nusati, Sangha Nusati. So we need to make these practices real for ourselves. And uh, the point is to use the thinking mind in a way that gives rise to a glad, bright, happy mind state. And then we'll find that it's much easier to be with the breathing. And, uh, and then when the mind has some collectedness and peacefulness to pick up a, a deeper investigative theme. So with regard to Buddha Nusati, we put some thought into, you can ask yourself, do you feel gratitude to Lord Buddha? And sometimes we have to dig a little bit 
if the mind is very restless or been thinking about all sorts of worldly things, maybe there's a lot of work, maybe there's deadlines, maybe there's staff issues, maybe there's family conflicts, maybe the content of the mind is mundane or not very inspiring. That's uh, often what we have to practice within the human situation. So sometimes it's like, am I grateful to the Buddha? Nothing, nothing might come up at first. And then you ask yourself, well, should I be grateful to the Buddha? And then when we consider this further, at least for myself, I, uh, I'm enormously grateful to the Buddha because Lord Buddha explained the path of dana, sila, and bhavana as being the path that leads away from ignorance, delusion, greed, and hatred. And if we didn't have his pointer, if we didn't have his uh, clear instructions, we probably wouldn't work that out by ourselves. And so we can ask ourselves, sometimes we, most of us have a gift for feeling a bit sorry for ourselves. And, you know, in some respects that's fair enough. Life can be difficult. But one of the things we can ask ourselves is, how much worse might it be if we didn't have Lord Buddha explaining to us that we should be generous and ethical and make efforts to contain the defilements and try to cultivate wholesome mind states, abandon unwholesome ones. So for myself, when I went to Bodh Gaya after being a bhikkhu for 10 years, I was doing some full-length prostrations in the direction of the Bodhi tree and the Vajra Asana and I got quite teary because there was this recognition of 10 years of practice as a bhikkhu, the mind being in a more wholesome state than it was 10 years previous. And I was wondering where would I be now if it wasn't for the bhikkhu training and if it wasn't for these teachings. And I was somewhat overcome with feelings of tremendous gratitude. And uh, but people have to engage these practices in ways that makes it real for you, for yourself. Like which, which of the suttas, which of the teachings really speak to you? And how did that, this is coming into the Dhamma Nusati, how did that teaching point you in a direction that you found helpful, that reduced your suffering to some degree? And so there's obviously a lot of correlation between Buddha Nusati, Dhamma Nusati, Sangha Nusati. But we recollect the wonderfulness of the Dhamma that speaks to us and helps us reduce our suffering and gives us confidence that we're on a path towards the eradication of suffering. And then naturally we feel grateful to the Buddha for putting these teachings establishing these suttas, these discourses on many occasions that were handed down to us. And then we think of the Sangha. Um, many people listening to me now consider Tanajana Nun as their main Dhamma teacher. And so we can feel gratitude towards Ajana Nun. And then naturally we would feel grateful to his teachers. And we kind of trace this lineage 
we kind of do this in a in a focused way. We bring the image of Ajahnanan to mind. You think of the fact that he practiced very sincerely, got very good results, purifying his mind. You feel happy for him, and you rejoice. Breathing in, sanko. Breathing out, sanko. We can continue to use the breath and continue to use the parikama practice. Oftentimes it might be butto, but when we're doing sanganusati, we use sanko. And then we think of Lumpota, Tanajananam's teacher. This morning Ajananam was giving a Dhamma talk and he was describing how he would often like to tape Ajananam's Dhamma talks to listen to later and also to preserve for posterity. But sometimes he was so absorbed in a kind of rapturous appreciation for the Dhamma that Lumpota was speaking that he would forget to bring out the tape recorder and forget to press record. So we think of how hard Lumpota practiced and uh, what tremendous benefit he brought about. And then naturally his teacher, Lumpoman, and how incredibly a strict, disciplined, and uh, he's almost like the archetype of a of utterly pure, renunciant, forest-dwelling uh, monastic. And we can just bring to mind this lineage of great practitioners that goes all the way back to the Mahasanga, the Sāvakas of the Buddha, in the time of the Buddha. Uh, Lumpur Anan often mentions that Lumpur Chahar is in the same lineage as Mahakasapa because of his uh, strict practice with the Dutanga practices. So we can bring to mind which of the great disciples of the Buddha do you appreciate? If you don't know much about them yet, it's good to do a little bit of study. Read that wonderful book, The Great Disciples of the Buddha, and become familiar. There might be, so oftentimes modern people will read something and we'll have that feeling of, I read that, and we'll put it down and we won't think about it, and we'll be on to the next thing. In training in these anusatis, which are oftentimes a samatha practice, it's actually about recollecting again and again and again. It's a process of familiarization. And we familiarize the mind with these meditation themes so that we become, can become adept at picking up a wholesome meditation object and brightening the mind, gladdening the mind, and becoming familiar and comfortable with that practice. So thinking of Lumpur Anand, thinking of Lumpur Cha, thinking of Lumpur Man, being happy for them, for their liberation, feeling grateful to them for their example of practice. And then all the way back, Sariputta, who was sometimes referred to as the wet nurse of the Sangha, training hundreds and hundreds of young bhikkhus to the point of stream entry. And then Mahamogalana, who would help those hundreds and hundreds of bhikkhus to finish off their practice, attain to arahantship. When we go through, we read a book like The Great Disciples of the Buddha, there may be one in particular that we really feel a connection with, that we really appreciate. And that, that could be a bhikkhuni also. It could also be one of the great lay patrons, Visaka or King Bimbisara. And we become familiar with our favorite 
Sangha Nusati, objects of recollection, so that we now have that as a tool. I can bring this recollection to mind, I can apply my thinking mind, gladden the mind, and you'll find that if you cultivate practices like this, after five, ten minutes, the mind is happier, the thinking is within wholesome parameters, and then you can incline, incline the mind to watching the breath, the thinking gets less and less, the mind is happy, content to stay with the breath. And so this is how we use samatha practices, to incline the mind to be a little more peaceful, to truly be with the breath, and then we can explore some of the deeper investigative practices. And similarly, another wonderful book, The Life of the Buddha. We read that book and get these wonderful stories and we recollect which occasions in the Buddha's life are we most moved by, what are we most touched by. And we can just recollect that again and again and again and make the mind glad again and again and again. There is of course the other anusatis, marana anusati, uh, was the basis of Tanajana Nun's practice for the first four or five years of his bhikkhu life. He was quite adept at recollecting impermanence and death. And uh, a lot of these practices, when, when cultivated, lead to the state of upajara samadhi, <coughs> neighborhood concentration, a state which is described as touching on jhana. In upajara samadhi, there are only few thoughts and only wholesome thoughts. So they're of tremendous benefit. The Lord Buddha praises Maranusati, the recollection of death frequently, because it begins to weaken the grasping at permanence uh, that the self-view is based upon, and it helps to ripen the mind for the deeper insights into not-self when we do do the body contemplation and the contemplation on elements, for example. A practice less often talked about, which is appropriate for some people, is the practice of Devanusati, where you recollect the existence of Devas who, it's good to keep in mind that in the time of the Buddha, Lord Buddha would have one watch of the evening for 45 years where he was teaching Devas. He mentions that repeatedly. And a good number of those devas attain to paths and fruition. So there are many thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, of devas who attain to stream entry, once returner, and non returner states. And so if a person believes in devas, you know, sometimes you might see some very depressing news, and oftentimes these days there's not very inspiring news about monks and nuns. And one can get the sense that everything's falling apart and darkness is taking over the world. And it's all a matter of what we give our attention to, what we give our focus to. But if the mind does get dejected and falls into a bit of a negative, despairing state, if a person has the belief that beings exist in celestial realms, then we just bring that to mind and just you can use a little bit of imagination in the realm of the Four Kings, the First Heaven Realm, I believe there are hundreds of thousands of stream enter devas, beings whose minds are established on Dhamma, destined for Nibbana, who will not take a seventh birth, and simply rejoice in their existence. 
And you can go through the realms. In Dawatimsa heaven, I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands of devas who have attained. And these are part of the Sangha, not the Bhikkhu Sangha, but the Arya Sangha, the Sangha of those who have practiced well, practiced correctly, seen the Dhamma, destined for liberation. And if you train yourself in doing this, you'll notice when you start to think of the existence of millions of devas who are established in Dhamma, suddenly you don't feel quite so lonely. Suddenly the world doesn't seem so dark. There are millions of noble-minded, wholesome-minded beings with radiant minds. And Lord Buddha says about Devanusati that those who think of devas with affection become dear to the devas. The devas draw near to them and offer protection to them. And so that's a, another nice thing. Now Devanasati, Lord Buddha did explain that it was for people with a faith proclivity. It was for people who believe that they actually exist. And sometimes I meet people in Thailand who, modern people, younger people, who don't believe in devas or are not sure about the next life. And then I'll usually ask them, yeah, but do you believe in ghosts? And nine times out of ten they believe in ghosts. And that's a very interesting. So I said, okay, so if you're not sure that there's a next life, and you're not sure that there's a deva, but you're really sure that there are ghosts, that's interesting. And I ask them to consider, if there are ghosts, then there must be a future life. Consciousness didn't stop when the body died. If the ghosts are receiving the results of negative karma or dying with a not clear mind state, then beings who died with a clear mind state, who were, had many merits, probably went higher. And then they begin to consider the probability of the fact that karma, the law of karma is at play and that there are ghosts and devas. Of course, when there are ghosts and devas, this opens up the probability that there are also hell, hell, hell realms, beings in hell. It's an interesting subject, Devanusati, because some people really, really like it and have a lot of faith and they can get a bit lost in it. It's almost like the people that should do Devanusati often don't. The more materialist ones, the ones that get stuck in their logic thinking, they need to think a bit more about devas, relax a bit, brighten the mind a bit, learn to gladden the mind. The people who already believe in them, they really like to think about it, they think about it more and more and more. And, and Thailand's an interesting place because you have these kind of trends with devas, like the whole nation gets obsessed with one particular deva for a while and it, everybody gets that amulet or that statue. And, about 15 years ago, it was Chatukam, it's an ancient bodhisattva from India. Everybody had a Chatukam amulet. About 10 years ago, it was Ganesha. Everybody was getting a Ganesha. And recently, it's a Yaka, Taoisuan. Everybody's getting a <laughs> particular Yaka. And they tend to believe that if they pray to these beings, they'll help them to win the lottery number. And uh, I guess some people do pray to them and win the lottery. <laughs> but that's not the point of Devanusati as Lord Buddha describes it. The point of Devanusati is to recollect good beings, lovely beings, the Kalyanachon. You have Patujana, the coarse-minded, dark-minded beings, and then you have the Kalyanachana, 
the lovely-minded beings, and then you have the Aryajana, the noble-minded beings, where recollecting the existence of the Kalyana Jhana, the lovely beings with bright minds, wholesome minds, so that we resonate with that, so that we brighten our mind, we rejoice in their goodness. That's very close to the Mudita Brahmavihara, appreciative joy, empathic joy. When we resonate in the goodness of the devas, our mind becomes like a deva. Your mind becomes like what it attends to. So we try to we try to keep the recollection wholesome, and we try to keep it uh, within the parameters of rejoicing in their goodness, not asking for too many favors. Of course, it's okay occasionally. So many people like to go to places like the Emerald Buddha, which is favorite, famous for being a place where one can make aspirational prayers. And going and making prayers like, may I continue to meet well-practiced practitioners, may I find good Dhamma friends, may I have opportunities to practice Dhamma so that I may grow in insight and samadhi, that's all very wholesome. And uh, making such aspirations is skillful. Um, Since it's uh, Tanajan's birthday tomorrow, I thought I might talk a little bit about Tanajan, part of our practice of Sangha Nusati, my practice of Sangha Nusati. When I was a one Pansa Bhikkhu, I went to the Emerald Buddha, and I had good teachers, Tanajan Pasano, Rumpusamedo, Ajanjaya Saru, my my Westerner English-speaking teachers, all good teachers, and uh, coming primarily from a wisdom approach, explaining teachers teachings intelligently, logically, made good sense, and their teachings helped me to develop faith in being a bhikkhu and to make it for those first few years. But I also at that time, I, I would say I was rich with suffering, had a lot of challenges, and I felt that I needed uh, more help. And so I, I went to the Emerald Buddha and I made the aspiration, if there is a, a great master in Thailand that I have karmic affinity with, that it would be helpful if I trained with that person, may I meet them, because I'm interested to be a bhikkhu for the remainder of my life, but I don't know if I can tolerate my mind states. I don't know if I, I didn't have by that stage any doubt in the teachings of the Buddha. I didn't have any doubt in the existence of arahants or the goodness of arahants. What I had doubt in was whether or not I would be able to patiently endure my own painful mind states. And uh, so I needed some help at the age of 23. And so I went off to a jungle area on the border of Burma, Samlaksong Daodam, where Ajahn Siripanyo is the abbot these days. And I was there for a couple of weeks. Ajahn Kalyanu was there, Ajahn Sudanto was there. He was Tan Sudanto at the time. Myself, I think there were three or four of us. And Ajahn Anand actually came into that jungle area on the border of the Burma. It was the only time that he went there. And he came with five monks. And uh, I was able to have some 
chats with him. I believe he stayed four nights, if I remember correctly. And uh, so Tanajanam was 44 years old, 25 years ago. That's when I met him. Still quite a young man. And there's an area where we were staying up a series of very steep steps dug into the mountain. And we were sleeping on bamboo, bamboo platforms under umbrella tents with a mosquito netting. So Tanajan walked up those steps and stayed on that bamboo and, and uh, he was able to help me because I was having some difficulty in that my mind was getting more sensitive to dukkha. And uh, the more I practiced, I came to, came to the training because I was aware of dukkha unsatisfactoriness. But it seemed like the more I practiced, the more I became aware of it. And of course, we want our practice to lead to there being less suffering. And uh, I was having this experience of the mind would be full of an experience of suffering. And I'd try to make the mind larger to get some spacious awareness around it. And the feeling of suffering would fill that space. And I'd try to make the mind even more spacious. And then the suffering would fill that space. And it was like there was nothing but suffering. And I'm like, I don't know if I can take this. And uh, in the jungle, by yourself, long dark nights, the, th the threat of tigers. There were moments when I thought, okay, tiger, could just come and eat me, please. <laughs> At least I get to die in the robes. <laughs> but when I asked Tanajananan, what can I do with this experience? He gave some very helpful advice. He said, actually, uh, it's normal for someone who at the age of 23 is deciding to be a bhikkhu and thinking of being a bhikkhu for their lifetime, it's normal for them to have had the insight that there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness, there is suffering. That's what gets one to that situation where one is trying to do something about that. And then he said it's not uncommon for the sensitivity to develop before the equanimity. So the sensitivity to dukkha, which is the first noble truth, gets more sensitive. And then you meditate more and more and more, and there's more and more awareness of it. What does one do with that? Tanajananan said, this is normal. So that was very helpful, because there's a part of you that's wondering, am I going crazy? Is this not normal? Tanajananan said, this is normal. And he said, I felt that way too when I was a younger monk. That was also very helpful. And he says, it's like this. As you, your sensitivity to the First Noble Truth increases, it's like you're in a house that's on fire. He says, and that's true actually, that's absolutely correct. The house is on fire. If you want to look at the fire sermon, form is burning, the eyes are burning, the ears are burning, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, it's all burning. Burning with what? Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. He says, but it's in, as though you're in the house that's on fire and you don't yet have anywhere to go, you're on fire too. That's what it's like. He said, but if you can patiently endure, if you just patiently endure, what's going to happen is the mindfulness and clear comprehension is going to get stronger. And that which is able to observe the dukkha is going to be able to have some space from that. And that which knows suffering isn't suffering, 
But at the moment, the mindfulness that knows it isn't strong enough to separate from it. But if you keep training in these practices and patiently endure, the mindfulness and clear comprehension gets stronger and you're able to observe that the house is burning without the feeling of you burning. And then, of course, he gave the encouragement to engage metta bhavana for the first five or ten minutes of every sitting because there was suffering in the mind, a lot of heat. We bring up the coolness of loving acceptance, loving kindness, loving friendliness. And it's called replacement by opposites. We put what Lord Buddha describes, describes as a divine abiding. We, we establish a wholesome, pleasant mind state. And this is really important. We need to become adept that when there is a lot of suffering around or there is a lot of perceptions of dukkha, we do need to be able to pull up something which is sukha, something which is pleasant for the sake of encouraging, nourishing and balancing our efforts. So that was tremendously helpful advice. To It's wonderful to hear that I've been where you are, young man. You're not doing anything wrong. Actually, you're having correct perceptions. You just need to keep going. And also, nobody says it's easy. It does require a lot of patient endurance. But at least knowing that the patient endurance does develop qualities, a stronger quality of mindfulness, that stronger quality of mindfulness becomes more stability of samadhi, some ability to establish cool mind states, to get some rest from the pervasiveness of dukkha. So very wonderful. And then on the day that Tanajan was leaving, keep in mind that we were in the middle of a jungle on the border of Burma. There's no village for arms food. Somebody offered a pizza and the pizza had eight pieces of pizza and there were nine bhikkhus and I was at the end of the line and I made an aspirational prayer. If Tanajana Nun really is my teacher, there will be some kind of a sign. And uh, as it happened, Tanajana Nun put his piece of pizza on his bowl lid and he told the monks, you give that piece of pizza to Ajahnatsalo. <laughs> so I got the piece of pizza and I thought, Ajahnatsalo is my teacher. <laughs> anyway, maybe. Maybe I just gave it more meaning <laughs> than it had. But at the very least, Antanajanam was kind. He gave the bhikkhu at the end of the line his piece of pizza. I still recollect those occasions, the fact that Antanajanam came into the jungle after my aspirational prayer at the Emerald Buddha, and the fact that he gave me his piece of pizza and then I asked him, Tanatan, do you think I have enough merit to continue in this training? And he looked at me and he says, you have merit, Atalo. And I go, that's nice. Because <laughs> you don't feel like it when you're really suffering. You don't, you're not sitting there thinking I have great merits. Even if you do, when you really have a look at the pervasiveness of the dukkha laksana, the dukkha characteristic, it's a serious 
and we have to learn how to Lumpo Panyawaro, the uh, senior disciple English monk of Lungta Mahabua, he said it's actually good that beings when they first come to practice don't see the full extent of dukkha straight away because they go mad. He said it's actually good that the ignorance, ignorance gets a little bit less and the sensitivity gets a little bit more and people slowly see. Because what has to happen is when we see dukkha, we, if we have the foundation of the generosity and the ethics and beginning to get more sati and more samadhi, is the mind becomes, comes inward. And it, that's really important. When you look at the last paragraphs in those first three teachings, the Dhammachaka Sutta, the Anattalakana, the fire sermon, the process is explained that weariness arises, dispassion arises, and that experience of weariness and dispassion can be intense. But you really need to look at the next sentence. Through the weariness, through the dispassion, the mind is sobered, purified, liberated. It's because we perceive things as being sukha that aren't sukha that we cause ourselves suffering. And if we see dukkha for what it is, the mind wakes up, turns inwards. And uh, as Lord Buddha says in other suttas, it is within this fathom long body that liberation occurs. It's not at the end of samsara which can't be found. It's not at the highest heaven realms. It's within this body. So the mind being sobered from its delusions and its fascinations comes inwards. And then it's, as Lumpur Ajahnanam was saying in this morning's Dhamma talk, when you have mindfulness, when your mindfulness is good, he says, Nibbana can seem like it's so far away. But when you have good mindfulness, Nibbana is very close. And so mindfulness is occurring within your body. Mindfulness of the body as a body, feelings as feelings, mind states as mind states. We have this good quality of mindfulness, Nibbana is close. We practice consistently, you begin to have some vipassana insights into these uh, deeper truths. And then uh, you have somewhere to rest, to observe dukkha, and somewhere to rest as you let go of the things that cause dukkha, seeing the attachment, seeing the clinging, seeing the craving, working steadily, and letting that go. And then these factors of samadhi, rapture, tranquility, serenity, these other qualities become part of your refuge of dhamma in your heart. So I know you're all engaged in this process. I uh, rejoice in your efforts. I did also want to give people the opportunity to ask some questions if they had any. I hope that something I said, shared, may have been helpful to some of you. I wish you every success in your practice. Hi Ajahn Achalu. Thank you for the Dharma talk. May I know how can one start to train patient endurance? It seems so challenging. Is it if one does not have any virtue, one cannot practice patient endurance? Thank you. Yeah. So it's good that this person is using the word practice. How does one practice patient endurance? And uh, the answer is contained in the question. It is through practice. 
So nobody, nobody comes to the meditation practice and says, I'm going to be patient. And with that kind of positive affirmation, it's possible. Uh, what brings about patient endurance is enduring patiently. That's the only way. It is also true that uh, if a person is virtuous, it is easier, it's just easier to spend time with yourself when you have freedom of remorse. So the thing about having kept precepts strictly for a period of time is that when you come to sit by yourself, there's nothing to feel particularly bad about. You didn't steal, you, didn't, you weren't particularly harsh in your speech, you haven't cheated on anybody. You feel okay about your goodness. And we can recollect our goodness and we can recollect our efforts as a way of encouraging. That's the Chaganusati, the Silanusati, recollecting these things. And uh, that helps us to be with it. But sometimes, sometimes it's not good to try to do too much all of a sudden because then people can get disheartened. I like to encourage a slow but steady plodding forward but never stepping back approach. So if you can only sit 15 minutes, when you increase it, you increase it to 20. Once you've established it at 20, you increase it to 25. Once you've established it at 25, you increase it to half an hour and, and you keep increasing. And, and what happens is that once you can do that, you'll probably find that after 20 minutes, there'll be many days that the mind just becomes peaceful at 20 minutes and the next 10 or 15 minutes isn't difficult to sit with. But we have to, very important to practice consistently. So if you, if you don't yet do much formal sitting, you have to be absolutely uh, ruthless in a way to do it every day and then increase. I'm sure most people doing this retreat are already sitting every day. So then I, I would recommend two or three sessions a day of half an hour to 40 minutes because what that's going to do is it's going to increase the general level and quality of the mindfulness. And then once you have that better quality of steady mindfulness and a consistency of practice, then you can increase it from 30 or 40 minutes to 45 minutes, three times a day from 45 minutes to an hour. But you want to be doing it in that kind of a steadily progressing so that you develop the tools in part of your process so that your growth will be ongoing and consistent rather than stops and starts, one step forward, one step back. So, and it's good to, it's good to keep in mind that even Lumpo Anan, Lumpo Cha, Lumpo Man and the Buddha started as ordinary beings many thousands of lives ago that had challenges like this. That's how it starts. And we have to start at the beginning, but we keep going. Um, and then those times when you are sitting and there isn't a lot of resistance and you are quite patient, it's really important to notice that and give yourself a pat on the back and rejoice. You do, you do need to, we do, we all need to be able to rejoice in our practice. That's one of the ways we nourish further practice. Virtues mean higher moral standards, 
high moral standards, how can one develop virtues? Thank you. So we're supposed to be keeping the five precepts at the very least. And uh, at the same time, having said that, it is a training. So wherever you are, whatever your habits are, you look at those five precepts as your reference. This is what Lord Buddha says is the standard for a good Buddhist. This is the standard. And if you're breaking lots of them often, probably most of the people listening to this aren't, but in case one or two are, then you, you look at which ones, which ones can you clean up first? Or can you stop killing? And can you stop uh, drinking, whatever it is? Although that's often the most difficult one for a lot of people. And then you start to keep, you keep more. So the training in sealer is referred to as a seikar, a training, a practice, and nobody keeps them pure all the time without ever making a mistake, particularly in speech. People often find, oh, I exaggerated a bit there, or oh, that wasn't completely true. And then, so we, when we retake the precepts, we're, okay, I'm recommitting to a standard of truthfulness. Might get upset, use some harsh speech. Oops, okay, I need to remember not to be quite so harsh. And then, one tries to keep the eight precepts on the lunar observance day, so that's taking on some extra renunciation, not eating in the evening, not sleeping on a very comfortable bed, not uh, seeking entertainment and distraction, not uh, using perfumes, decorating the body, etc. If it's not convenient to do it on the Uposa today, uh, you can make it a, a principle of one day a week where you practice with the eight precepts. Or it might be uh, three or four days once a month, but it's a it's a very good very good skillful means that Lord Buddha established that if you're keeping the eight precepts once a week for 52 weeks, you've kept eight precepts for like a month and a half, nearly two months in one year. So it's like he's very skillful in in how he suggests you get this thin end of the wedge. But if you keep being consistent with it, at the end of the year, it's a lot. And uh, oftentimes, in order to be able to keep these good kind of ethical standards, it is good to have other Buddhist friends who keep the same standards. This uh, Kalyanamitta, we get, we get strength and inspiration from each other's practice. But at a certain point, I think we just have to decide that we are going to keep them. At a certain point, you just need to say, okay, because I want liberation, because I don't want endless rebirths into painful, conditioned experience, I recognize that I have to keep this standard. And we, we have to have that resolution and simply make the decision. And just like you wouldn't go without bathing, just like you wouldn't go without cleaning your teeth, you don't break your precepts, you don't go without meditating and chanting. You just have to have that strong conviction and just do it. Obviously, doing things like retreats is helpful. That's when you refresh, recharge, re-inspire, recommit. So. Thank you, Ajahn. Then there are 13 questions in the list. I will go until uh, yeah, until time's up. So.
next question, dear Ajahn, how can I start to integrate meditation practice in my daily life when I feel that I'm still a slave to my cravings and often falling to control and indulging in them? Thank you. It is difficult for people in the modern world, I think particularly if people live in an urban environment where there's, and particularly in Southeast Asia, where there's delicious food everywhere, 7-Elevens on every corner. It is, it is hard. And uh, we do need to make resolutions that, uh, and that, yeah. But as this, this person used the word slave to their cravings, so, because we don't want to be a slave to our craving, we, we have to put up a fight. And this is where you make, you have to make resolutions and then you have to keep them because it's, it's when you keep your resolutions that you develop the inner strength to do more. So it, it, again, it's a, it's a bit like plodding. If you make the resolution, you really need to keep it. And if you, if you break the resolution, you need to make some kind of gesture of making up for it. You do that for your own self-respect and dignity so that you can build a confidence. But you don't try to attack everything all at once. Don't try to go from someone who's a slave to their cravings to trying to be Lumpur Man as of Sunday. I'm going to eat one meal a day, never go to the 7-Eleven, stop wearing fragrances, whatever. Slowly, okay, how many ice creams a week, how many cappuccinos a week? Can I reduce it? How many meals a day? Three main meals, two snacks. Can I reduce the snacking? It's like you look at it, you look at the quantitative amount of how much you're acting out sensuality and you start scaling back in a way which is uh, doable. But you keep going, keep going. and. Uh, Hopefully what occurs is the extra clarity that you get and the extra, the, the spare time that you get, because you're not as busy running around following all your cravings, that you'll see the result of being less sensual, being less compulsive, uh, acting out these things less. And what should occur, and this is encouraging, is that feelings of contentment, well-being arise in the mind by themselves without as a result of the ethical behavior and the generosity and the sense restraint, that that need to keep filling the hole with sensuality gets less. So slow and steady, but determined. Good luck. Dear Ajahn, I recognize there's some suffering, although I practice metta meditation, how can I apply metta to myself and others and really mean it when it comes to practicing in the Sangha community? There's a difficult member in the Sangha and at best I can only keep a distance from him or her. Am I practicing metta well just by being aware of the other while still suffer the feelings and had to remind myself to do no harm to the other or myself whenever I meet this member? Maybe my meta training is being tested and I need some directions. 
My question is, saying may he or she be well is not working, at least in my case, it seems. Can you advise some ways to help myself through this? Thank you. So yes, we, when we engage the metta practice, you don't start as a metta superhero and you don't start as a somebody who's realized emptiness. So there is self, there is other, and in the conventionally speaking, <clears throat> the metta practice is a good foundation for developing in, insights into not-self, but that's a gradual process for most people. And uh, so as the training is explained, one cultivates loving-kindness for oneself and then for the beings for which it is easy to have loving-kindness for. That is the foundational stages. And then one goes from that to including larger numbers of neutral beings. You actually train in being able to hold in mind all of the people that you feel neutral towards and larger numbers of those. And the, the difficult people, what is the category that's referred to as the difficult people, is considered an advanced stage. And so knowing that this person is a difficult person for you and knowing that it's best for you if you can avoid them, I would say that's okay. It's okay. Yeah. This, is, this is where you're at. And you keep working on the power. But one, one practice that I, you work on making your metta more powerful so that one day you'll be able to have it for the difficult people. One practice that I found helpful is because you don't want to feed the contentiousness and you want to be aiming some kind of positivity in the direction of the difficult people. So one, one practice that I found helpful is after I do something which is meritorious, something that's good karma, I just quickly dedicate that merit to that person. I dedicate the merit of this activity to so-and-so. And you just do it for a second. And then don't think about them anymore. There's just like this little bit of positivity. Okay, don't think about it. don't think about it too much. But when you do think of them, you're giving them some positive energy. And I've found that this can change the dynamic a bit. So that at least when you think of that person, there's some association with all of those good things you did and nice thoughts you had, the, the merit, merits you dedicated towards them. On a deeper level, when the sense of self gets less rigid and less strong, and when the compassion for your suffering uh, becomes compassion for other people's suffering as well, you will understand that the difficult people, the people that you experience as difficult, normally they have really heavy mind states, normally they have a lot of suffering. And if you understand that when you have a heavy mind state, you're suffering, that person with their heavy mind states is suffering, it's natural to feel some empathy and some, some compassion for that. But it takes time and it's a process. So, yeah. I was to His Holiness giving some reflections in Bodh Gaya back in December. And obviously he's an advanced mentor and compassion teacher, practitioner. And he says when he, some, when he sees someone with particularly heavy mind states, he instantly, automatically has more compassion for that person because that person needs it more. But that's advanced. But it's nice to know, it's nice to be reminded that the difficult people need more compassion. So.
Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, Ajahn, the questions from Sister Linda. Thank you, Ajahn. Can you share some example of wholesome contemplation topic for the thinking mind to work on as a process to extend to the next calmer, more peaceful and stable state of mind for meditation, such as contemplation about life, death, meaning, purpose of life? Thank you. So this is Linda in Singapore. So Linda in Singapore does have faith in the existence of Amitabha Buddha and of Kuan Yin and of uh, Maitreya. So things like this, and Linda does have uh, respect in Sangha, good practitioners. So it's all of those, thinking of Shakyamuni Buddha with gratitude, thinking of Amitabha Buddha with gratitude, thinking of Kuan Yin with appreciation. And, uh, but one really needs to hold the perception and get the feeling of a deep loving, appreciation, gratitude, respect, faith, all of those wholesome qualities, like just really hold that in the mind. And then as a practice, because I, I know that Linda does her Amitabha Sutta often. Linda has also been to Bodh Gaya. So it's like, it's just recollecting what's already there but just kind of holding it in the mind longer until the mind brightens and gladdens and develops some steadiness, not like rushing onto the next thing. Just being content with that lovely perception of purified Buddhas, uh, vastly developed celestial bodhisattvas, well-practiced Sangha members, just holding that in mind. And, and then also Linda is also someone who's very generous, so she can recollect having helped to offer land, having helped to offer dwellings, having helped to offer medicines. It's like bringing to mind the times that we've been generous and feeling glad about it. It's not just, okay, I was generous once and that's in the past. It's like you recollect the merit and that, that merit then brightens the mind, produces more merit. It's like a merit multiplier when you recollect the merits you've made and feel glad about them, content about them, rejoice in them. So I know that Linda is a person with a fast mind, a lot of restlessness. So it's like, it's a matter of just holding it, developing some skill in holding it and uh, until the mind becomes more adept, more capable of being a bit more still. But they're very happy contemplations for someone who has faith. It's thinking of the Buddhas, the bodhisattvas, the arahants, the holy sites, wholesome activities. It's a, it's a lot of mental pleasure if we train ourselves in it. Thank you, Ajahn. Ajahn, uh, the house on fire that Ajahn spoke of, if one is sucked into the fire and jumping around to get out and can't, what should one do? Thank you. <laughs> So we're all in the fire and we're all trying to get out and, uh, and we're all engaging the process. So it's the generosity, it's the committing to the ethical precepts, it's the commitment to the daily practice. This is what is getting us out of the burning house. It's lowering the flames a little because we're not feeding the greed and the hatred. And it's, it's cultivating the integrity and steadiness of mind to be able to get some space from it. But that's where we're all, we're all engaged in that process. 
and uh, have to know it's normal and keep trying, keep going. So. Thank you, Ajahn. Hello, Ajahn. Ashalo. How do we train to rejoice in others and others' good fortune when we're having a bad time in our life? Thank you. <laughs> yes. I think it's, it's like it's similar to the metta practice. You, you have metta for the people that it's easy to have metta for first. So when it comes to rejoicing in the good fortunes of others, well, think of somebody that you actually like and somebody that you actually want to be happy and somebody who is experiencing good fortune and then you rejoice in that one person's good fortune, that one person's happiness and you make the wish, may they not be separated from that happiness and then there might be similar people just because of the inherent goodness or loveliness of that person, you just, you really want that person to be well. You want them to be happy. That's not a person who you feel resentful of or jealous towards. And so you become accustomed in being able to have that kind of joy for a few people. And then we train. We train in, in being able to rejoice in. But I think, you know, the Sangha Nusati is similar when we rejoice in the liberation of beings who've purified their minds, that's a kind of a glad, a, that's a mudita practice as well. And we're, I don't think we're going to resent the arahants for being enlightened. We might have moments of envy, oh, I wish I was too. But, you know, we, this practice will lead to that. So, yeah, sometimes if it's really difficult, if one's going through a difficult time, you don't have to take on the most challenging practices when you're going through a difficult time. Lean on your strength during the times that are difficult. Which of these anusati practices will work to brighten and gladden your mind when you're going through a difficult time? Maybe it's good anusati. You think of, okay, I'm going through a difficult time, but it would be worse if the Buddha didn't turn up at this point in the eon and uh, beings were even even more beings were greedy and hateful so we can rejoice in the merit and good consequences of buddhas coming into samsara at this point in time so that's what i would recommend use the anusatis that work and uh anusati sangha anusati and rejoice in the good fortune of those that it's easy to rejoice in and uh, Dear Ajahn, what is your advice on doubt regarding which tradition to follow? The forest tradition is great and beneficial. However, sometimes I also feel drawn and benefited from practices from other streams, specifically Tibetan Buddhism. Thank you. I think this is almost, almost inevitable for modern people who have at their fingertips teachings from teachers from many lineages and books and chant, chanting and internet dharma product shops and there is a danger to diversifying too much at the same time sometimes it, it is helpful so I think the, what the forest tradition has as its strength 
is the simplicity. So, okay, you have to keep the five precepts, you have to be generous, you have to practice mindfulness meditation. It's not that hard to understand, it's not that hard to commit to when you have faith. And that, I think that's wonderful and a real strength. Then in terms of what is the quality of your aspiration, are you going to, are you trying to become an arahant or a celestial bodhisattva, a Buddha, a Pateka Buddha, a great disciple? Okay, that's, it's not of that much consequence right now, actually. We need to think of what, how am I going to make my mind more wholesome today? And uh, the basic practices, the simple practices and committing to them is probably the most effective method. But even for the Theravadan practitioner, as I was talking about earlier, for those who have faith and for those who find it gives joy to recollect celestial beings, that's when the, the practices in the Mahayana and Tibetan tradition can be a very helpful supplement, something that is complementary if you want to think of a celestial Buddha. But for some people, if they really do believe in Amitabha Buddha, for example, or Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, as many Southeast Asians do, when they think of the existence of such a being, it gladdens and brightens their mind. But one doesn't necessarily have to separate that into Tibetan Buddhism and Theravadan Buddhism. I would just say, see that as Anusatis. You've got your breath meditation, Anapanasati. You've got your Buddha Anusati. And you can take some of this Tantric Buddhism and consider that to be Devanusati. And then uh, if it's helpful, okay, add it. And uh, as a supplement, as a helpful complement, if it is helpful. And just as we use Buddha for the in and out breath, then for the period that you're recollecting another Buddha or another, another Bodhisattva, you can use the mantra. But the point is the same. You're training in mindfulness, Buddha Nusati. You're training in Deva Nusati. You're training in holding a parikama or a mantra. You're training in cultivating more mindfulness, developing some skills at samatha, laying the foundation to develop insight. And try to see it like that as a foundational practices with some supplementary practices if they are helpful. So. Hi Ajahnachalu, um, Namon Buddhaya. You spoke about developing equanimity around the sensitivity of dukkha. How can we practice this equanimity if the dukkha is extremely overwhelming? The mind just wants to escape the pain. Thank you. Yeah, so equanimity isn't something that one can will oneself to have. As I was, as I was saying, to try to take a, a gentle but consistent plodding approach, doing a little bit more, doing a little bit more, doing a little bit more. And that's what I was trying to offer in this reflection. The importance of picking up some wholesome samatha practices that brighten the mind so that when it is going through difficult periods or that sensitivity to dukkha is being heightened, we have this ability to use our reflective thinking mind to pick up a subject that gladdens the mind. So that's exactly what I was saying. If there's a lot of dukkha, you come into the sit, you don't want to just deal with this dukkha, okay, brighten your mind. What is it about the Buddha that you think is wonderful? What is it about Arahans that is wonderful? 
and just rejoice in their happiness and rejoice in their existence and, be, and, and feel some gratefulness. And that will support us because this, is develop, this little bit of samatha is developing more samadhi, more stability in the mind. And we need these reflective meditations to help us, support us in the process. And then recollect the nobility of one's efforts. So when you're in the middle of that dukkha and you can't yet see the end, just acknowledge, yeah, this is hard and I'm really trying. And then rejoice as I'm breathing in. I rejoice in my efforts. Breathing out, I rejoice in my practice. And there's that, there's that wonderful line from the Awada Patimoka. Patient endurance is the supreme incinerator of defilements. That's no small statement. And it's a really wonderful statement because it says to us, what you're doing serves a purpose, has a function, is helpful. Of course, when you're in the middle of that process, it feels like the lasers are incinerating you. But the Buddha says, if you're patiently enduring with them, actually you're incinerating them. And it's good to look at those kind of verses as a positive affirmation. Okay, this is really hard, but I'm incinerating the defilements. <laughs> Satu. Keep going. The stench of burning dukkha will become the fragrance of Dhamma. Just keep going. Hi, Ajahn Achalo. If I'm unable to control my craving for food, does it mean I do not have virtue? I found myself gobbling down food because it tastes as good. And then it is never enough until I'm excessively full. I always tell myself it will be the last time, <laughs> last day I eat this much, but the cycle repeats tomorrow. So I think there is, virtue has different levels, right? So there's the basic level of virtue, and then there's the refinement of virtue. <laughs> Joyce wants to know who wrote the question. So, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, deluded beings in samsara, we don't, we don't all learn quickly. We have that experience of overeating and then, and the Lord Buddha's reflections on consuming food for the bhikkhus that we chant regularly is that I will take food in order to relieve unpleasant feelings, but not to the point of giving rise to more unpleasant feelings. That's literally what it says in the reflection on eating alms food. But if there is enough food for you to eat a lot, if you didn't steal that food, technically you still have virtue. But the refinement of virtue is knowing the right amount and taking the right amount. And unfortunately, it is the case for many of us that we have to make that mistake many times before we <laughs> the mindfulness gets clear enough in that moment to be able to say to yourself, just stop, because uh, it's going to be more difficult to meditate after this. Or, you're going to have unpleasant feelings. But, you know, sometimes when you start to keep precepts and you're not acting out sensuality in other areas, there's only so many areas where that greed can kind of latch onto something. And food is often what it is. So at least it's in an area where you can see it. At least you can see it's causing suffering. And then you set the aspiration. And there's one very interesting talk that Ajahn Chah gave where he said that half of practice is knowing what you need to let go of and not being able to. It's a very important teaching. 
It's like, okay, half the time I can let go and half the time I'm still following my bad habits. Half the time I'm still attached to my reaction. But it's that looking at it clearly and knowing that you should let go of it. This is what's creating the volition, the context, the kind of spiritual muscle to be able to. So it's like, you know what you need to be able to let go of. You're setting the intention. You're trying. Half the time you can, half the time you can't. But as long as you're truthful, and as long as you have that aspiration, and as long as you keep trying, you will be able to. It will get better and better. So. And there's still a long list of questions. Should I go on? I do come. I'm almost exhausted. One last question. Stretching my teeth. <laughs> Ajahn Achalo, could you give some example? Could you give more detail about how to make an aspiration for one's next life? Example to be born into good Buddhist family with Aryas and Arahan teachers around as a tram. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Okay, so this person, it, it almost sounds like this person already knows what they aspire for. So this person mentioned to be born in a good family in proximity to well-practiced Aryans meeting the Buddhist teachings. So it's just that. But the time to do it, the time to make aspirations with regards to having auspicious causes in your future life is when the mind is glad through having made merit or after meditation when the mind is peaceful. That's when the aspiration has some power. So you make your mind as peaceful as you can and then you, you finish your meditation Oftentimes we don't realize it because there's a feeling of more emptiness, more spaciousness. It's almost like nothing. But there is more well-being. There is more gladness. And the mind is actually powerful in that moment. And that's the moment to make an aspiration. So we train in, we train in establishing this habit due to this merit, this uh, merit of this meditation, this chanting, or this listening to the Dhamma talk. I aspire. May I be born. I dedicate this merit May I be born in a place where there is the true Buddha Dhamma, uh, Buddhas or well-practiced disciples, and may I meet the true Dhamma, have the opportunity to practice. One simply makes those aspirations again and again, but one does it after meditation. And sometimes you dedicate the merit to parents, teachers, people who you know are having a difficult time, sometimes to all beings, and sometimes to one's own future. So it's kind of taking it in turns. You can also dedicate merit to your teachers, your parents, all beings, and then say, through the merit of that, may I continue to come in contact with well-practiced practitioners and Buddhas and meet the true Dhamma, have opportunities to practice. So, it's a good thing to do.